0: 504 in the church Bibles. It might be 503, just check. So, Esther 4, starting at verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he only went as far as the king's gate, because no one, clothed in sackcloth, was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you were in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your old position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And our second reading is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 to 15. And that is on page 1202 of the Church Bibles. I will put my trust in him. And again he says, here am I, and the children of God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Thanks be to God. Evening
1: everybody. Uh, If you've uh, turned your Bible to Hebrews, maybe just flick it back to Esther chapter 4 on page 503, uh, because we'll spend most of our time there over the next 25 minutes or so. But let me start by by asking you, did you say it? Did you join in? Those of you who um, were watching the coronation... Last Saturday, did you pledge your allegiance to King Charles, to his heirs and successors? According to law, so help you God. It was quite a controversial moment, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know what you, you thought of it. Um, a lot of strong opinions uh, in the media. Uh, it seems to have been put in, I think, as a way of, of uniting people, of, of kind of uh, bringing people together uh, in a show of, of allegiance, I guess, to the king. Um, but negatively, people saw it, didn't they, as kind of really out of touch with our modern democracy. Now, our, um, our Sainsbury's food delivery arrived at just that moment, so I was spared having to make a choice of whether I was going to join in. Um, but look, in a sense, whether you said it or not, it doesn't really matter that much. I'm 95% sure the government weren't monitoring our mobile phones to see whether we said it or not. I'm pretty sure they didn't. But look, whether we, we said it or not does demonstrate something of how aligned we feel to our new king and how much impact his reign has over our lives. You know, whether we're proud a patriotic royalist or a staunch, he's not my king, anti monarchist, to the whole vast spectrum in between. And in a similar way, our passage tonight is about allegiances. Which king will Esther align herself with? And for us, all of us will face defining moments uh, whether we will choose whether we'll identify with Jesus or not. In fact, the biggest moment for us will will come when we hear the gospel. You know, how will we respond? Will we reject Jesus or or accept him as our, our Lord and Savior? But then for those of us who have put our trust in him, each day when we wake up, we need to again set out our stools to live for Him and not for ourselves. But you know, I'm also pretty sure that at points in our lives, we will all face moments of testing when we need to display our faith in a particularly bold way. And when the ramifications for ourselves or, or for others, they, when they could be disastrous, well we especially need wisdom and courage. At the, those moments, because what it means to be aligned to Christ is not always going to look the same way. There will be times when we need to be shrewd, maybe even keep quiet about our faith. But when we're living in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christian believers, you know, a a culture where wearing a cross on a necklace could get you sacked, or, or not baking a cake for somebody could see you end up in court. Well, then the challenge for us is how do we live out our faith in a way which is wise uh, and not reckless? In our decisions, are we being tactful and clever but remaining faithful to God? Or might our actions be be bold and well-meaning but actually foolish and rash? Are we being rightly gentle in how we relate to other people or are we just being a bit cowardly? These are decisions that we need to make each day, Our allegiance is to King Jesus, but how do we know what demonstrating that looks like when the pressure is on? Now, if you're a, if you're a teacher, do you, do you teach your students the, the modern narrative on, on gender and, and sexuality, but, but you shape it as best you can through the lens of your faith? Or do you refuse to teach anything that you don't agree with and risk the fallout? Medics, do you, do you offer to pray with a dying patient and risk losing your job, or do you go away and pray for them in private? Office workers, are you going to attend next month's Pride events to demonstrate our love for all people made in God's image, or do we make ourselves conspicuous by our absence? Those of us at school or, or college, does everyone know that you're a Christian? Or is it wiser to keep quiet except among your closest friends? All of us, how, how vocal should we be in speaking out publicly against issues that seem to be contrary to God's word, poverty, injustice, abortion, oppression? Should we be bold in standing against these things? Or should we seek to win people for Christ by living quiet, peaceful, godly lives? Should we keep trying to share the gospel with our mum or our brother, even though it's causing such a lot of tension in the family? When and where to to make a stand for our faith requires wisdom. Now, sometimes it's right to pick our battles and not fight every one of them. But what can help us decide in those moments? Well, come with me back to the book of Esther. Esther. If you've been here the past few weeks, you'll know that the world we're in, in Esther, is, is the kingdom of Persia, 5th century BC, and we're specifically in the city of Susa, the remains of which you can find in modern-day Iran, and we're in the courts of King Xerxes, in some ways an almost cartoon-like figure, extravagant, seems to be driven by his, his base urges. He's, he's volatile, he's prone to extreme reactions, and yet passive in decision-making susceptible to being manipulated by others but a dangerous man. And we've seen two examples already when the actions of one individual has ramifications for many people. And the puzzle of the book, if you've been here before, is that it's not exactly clear whether what they did was the right thing or not. So back in chapter one, we had Queen Vashti, Xerxes' first queen, who refused to come to his banquet and parade herself for his guests, but her actions led to her removal as queen, and an edict passed throughout the whole Persian empire that all wives must henceforth be subject to the authority of their husbands. Was she courageous, proto-feminist figure, or was she a bit foolish, disrespectful? It's not clear. Then last week we saw Mordecai, didn't we? Uh, Esther's guardian and a a proud Jew, and he refuses to bow down to Haman, a man raised up to a, a high position of authority by Xerxes, but also by an ethnicity an agagite, and therefore an ancient enemy of the Jews. A small individual act of defiance, but one that leads to the extraordinary rage-filled edict in chapter 3, verse 13. To all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Was it the right thing for Mordecai? To have, uh, to, to have held on to that historic enmity between his people and Haman's people, and refused to pay him homage, or was it stubborn to let past hostilities affect his behaviour now, especially given what happens? It's one person's act that has far-reaching consequences for many. And today we come back to Esther, one who, in worldly sense, couldn't be much more aligned with King Xerxes as his new young queen. And she's got there under advice from Mordecai to hide her Jewish heritage. And here she is, finding herself living a life of luxury and safety, primarily, it seems, by virtue of her beauty and her ability to please the king in the bedroom. What do we make of that? It's not what you might expect of one of God's people. But today, she's going to need to make a choice whether to keep going with her Persian identity or not. A decision that, unlike Vashti or Mordecai, she knows she knows, will have huge ramifications, whatever she chooses for herself and others. So what is going to help her decide where her allegiance lies? Look, we've said already there aren't hard and fast rules in this book. But hopefully two principles that we'll see here that I hope will help us as we face some of these challenges ourselves. So here are the two things. Aligning ourselves with Christ involves committing to God's people in love above ourselves and submitting to God's plan in humility, whatever he brings. I think these are things that we see most clearly and the last few verses of of the chapter. But I think we see them in part all the way through. And rather than than looking at one point, then the next, I'd love us just to hold these two things together as we work our way through the passage. So come back back with me to the beginning of chapter 4. Because I think we first start to see a glimpse of these things right at the start as we pick up the story following that decree of Haman against the Jews. So just see how Mordecai reacts in verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. Now, he's understandably distraught, isn't he? He's tearing his clothes, he's wailing. And you can imagine he's also angry, he's bitter at what Haman has set into motion. And he's probably also feeling guilt and shame. Ultimately, he's responsible for this genocide that is to come, even though he couldn't have foreseen. But did you see that it's not just Mordecai who is distressed at this point? Just over the page in verse 3. In every province where the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. See, that the Jews understand uh, they understand what is, what is coming for them. And remember what we've seen, it's often in the subtle little details of this book that we see allusions to God, and one of them is right here in verse 3. Now, that, that putting on of sackcloth, covering yourself with ashes, that, that mourning and wailing, it was a common display of laments. Now, it wasn't exclusive to the Jews, it was done by other cultures too. But I think what the writer of this book is doing, he's expecting his original readers to pick up an allusion to another book of the Bible, the prophet Joel. Now, at a time when God's people were under threat of of judgment and destruction, God tells them through Joel to return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord. I think what the writer is doing, do you see, we're meant to think that this, we're meant to take the hint that this is, this is God's people in exile again, facing extinction, but here they are once again crying out to him for mercy that he might spare them. And Mordecai, even though he knows it's his fault, he knows Haman is out for his blood, well, he isn't afraid to be out in the open displaying his sorrow and so publicly uniting himself with his fellow Jews. So Mordecai and his fellow Jews across Persia are bound together in grief and prayer, submitting themselves in humility to the hands of God. But then the action swings back to Esther, and you get a sense in the next few verses of just how, how distanced she is from events. She doesn't seem to have any idea about the edict. She has no idea why Mordecai is upset. Now, it may be because Mordecai, in sackcloth, he's not allowed to get anywhere near the king's gate anymore, so he hasn't seen Esther, though it may be symptomatic of a growing distance between them as she's become more and more involved in the life of the court. Now, we don't know. Whatever the reason, though, uh, she is reliant on others to tell her what's going on. But look, when she does here, her love for Mordecai begins to stir her to action. Now, clearly she's concerned that her adoptive father is in distress. And so she offers him new clothes to replace his sackcloth. I guess that would have allowed him at least to come to the king's gate, where maybe she could come and speak to him. But, of course, he doesn't accept them. He's got no intention of breaking from his lament. And so Esther has to send one of her attendants, Hathak, to find out what's going on. And so in verse 7 and 8, Mordecai explains the situation to him and he puts his request to Esther. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which has been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. So at last, Esther knows what is going on, but more than that, he sends her a message. Did you see that in the end of verse 8? He tells her... He tells Hathak to instruct Esther to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. I remember previously Mordecai has told Esther to keep her Jewish heritage secret, and doing so has helped her to get to this position. But that time of secrecy is over. Esther needs to reveal her true identity, that she is Hadassah the Jew, as well as Esther, the Persian queen. I wonder how you might have felt in that moment as a young girl, strange land, confused, overwhelmed, conflicted. Well, look, we can see in Esther's response that above all else it seems that she was terrified. Her answer to Mordecai is basically, no, no, I, I can't, I can't do it, I can't do it. And it seems she even tries to make Mordecai feel a little bit bad for asking. Do you see that in verse 11? She says, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know the deal. I can't enter the king's presence unless I'm summoned. It is against the law. And the risk is death. You can feel sympathy for her, can't you? Why she might respond like this. She's known the king long enough to know what he's like. He may be a bit easy to influence, doesn't seem great at having original thoughts, but he's dangerous, he's vindictive, he's powerful. You can understand that sense of, of self-preservation. It's, it's high in all of us, isn't it? It's instinctive. You know, she's not being asked to jump over a neighbor's fence to retrieve a football here, is she? Now, she's still a young lady. She's... She's maybe just a few years into marriage, at most. But it's clear that she doesn't have much to do with the king anymore. His interest in her has waned, and Esther hasn't been in his presence, let alone his bedroom for 30 days, she says. The risk to her life is real. The chances of death are high. And yet, with the greatest empathy and understanding, the issue is that Esther is more concerned with herself than others isn't it? So the fact that hundreds or or thousands of her people are facing annihilation at this stage is not enough to prompt her to put her own life on the line to try and save them. Now look, I hope that none of us will ever face a situation as serious or as life threatening as this. But I think there is a principle at work underneath this for us, which is will we commit to the well-being of others above our own? There'll be generally be times when it will be right not to do something, to, to hold back, whether that's to do with standing up a Christian as a Christian or, or something else. But it's worth asking ourselves in those moments, I think. Are we using reasonable excuses as a cover for fear and selfishness? Remember, we're not dealing with black and white answers here. There's no clear instructions for us in this book. Just how do we find wisdom and courage in those moments of testing? which we'll all face. Questions to ask ourselves. So that could be the end of the story, couldn't it? Uh, we could, could stop there. But Mordecai tries again. He tries again in those verses 12 to 14. And it's interesting, he does two things to try and persuade Esther this time. Did you see that? Firstly, he appeals to her on, on a very kind of practical human level. He appeals again to her survival instincts. Because he basically tells Esther that if she doesn't go to the king, she's going to die anyway. It's another one of those really intriguing moments in the book of Esther. Now, is Mordecai saying that eventually it'll be discovered anyway that she's a Jew and she'll lose her life? Or is it a slightly veiled threat? Is he saying that maybe he'll expose her if she doesn't go to the king? Now, look, it might sound really harsh if that's what he did. and We don't know. But if the lies of a nation are at stake, maybe it's a, a cruel, to-be-kind moment. So he does that in the first place. He appeals to that natural survival instinct that she's already demonstrated. But look, the second thing he says, and look, in, in a book where, where God seems like he's more behind the scenes and center stage, I think the second thing he says is the closest indication we have in the book so far to faith in God. You see that in verse 15. Just have a look at it with me. Mordecai says to her, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Now, Mordecai knows that God has made covenant promises to the Jews to preserve them, to protect them. Right back from the time, time of Moses, do you remember this edict went out on the night before Passover? Do you remember that? God is in the business of of rescuing his people. And so Mordecai says to Esther, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai doesn't pretend to know how the story will end, nor does he know the will of God, but he does know his Jewish history. He does know how God often raises up unexpected people to be in the right place at the right time. Moses, a a baby in a basket, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. Joseph, ending up as as ruler in an Egyptian court via slavery and and prison. Rahab, a lady in a house with a window on the edge of the city walls, just right for letting people out. Mordecai doesn't know what's going to come next, but he does know what has gone before. And he does know God's character. When he says, who knows, you see that? It's not wishful thinking. It's not a shot in the dark. It's not a last throw of the dice that he's talking about. This is Joel chapter 2 language again. Joel chapter 2 says, who knows, God may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. We're meant to see that Mordecai is reminding Esther of who she is and who her God is. In a sense, well, he's kind of preaching the gospel to her, isn't he? And so, this is the crunch moment, isn't it? This is the moment when Esther needs to decide, the final time, what she's going to do. Is she going to continue to hide her faith? Or is she going to come clean about being a Jew and appeal to the king for mercy? Is she going to try and bring salvation for her people? Well, look, see how the chapter ends. Go, she says, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. Do you see how now her heart is changed? It is turned back to her people and her God. Her courage is found. Do you see how she's now uniting with her people in love? And she's kind of asking them, in a sense, to commit to her, to fast with her, to pray for her. And then she says, doesn't she, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. Again, I don't think that's fatalistic language. It's not k Sarah, Sarah. Now, after three days of fasting, submitting herself to God's will, whatever the outcome, Esther is prepared to submit herself to what God has in store. This is Esther calling her people to unite in her stead as she prepares to represent them. If they made this book into a TV series, this would be the end of the penultimate episode, right? Where the music swells and the camera zooms in on Esther's face with a determined look and the stage is set for the climactic episode. And I think for the audience watching, we're going to go, Yes! Come on! I think that's what we're going to feel. This is a pumping of the fist moment. This is Esther taking ownership of her faith again. It's interesting how the chapter ends in verse 17. Up until now, Mordecai has instructed her. Esther has listened and obeyed. But do you see now verse 17? Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is Esther owning her faith. Standing up to what she needs to do. So as we, as we start to bring this chapter back to, to ourselves today, thinking about those moments of testing that we'll all face, well, it's right, isn't it, that we do so through the, through the lens of the New Testament as, 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 as gospel believers, and we see how, how this points us to Jesus. Now, if the Old Testament is, is full of people, uh, God delivering his people through individuals, well, and in Jesus, we, we see their fulfillment, don't we? If we think about those two principles, perhaps underpinning Esther's change of heart, her decision-making, well, in Jesus we have one who lived it out perfectly, don't we? In Jesus we have someone who lived a perfect life of love for others above himself, committed to them. Everything he did was done to bring, bring healing and, and restoration to all he spent time with. There's no hint of selfishness in Jesus, is there? no moments of indecision, only a complete giving of himself for the sake of his people. And he perfectly submitted his life to God's plan, even when it took him to death on a cross. Esther rightly feared death, but courageously she faced the danger in a way to try and save her people. Christ did face death in order to save his people When he faced the anguish of what's to come, he prayed to his Father, not my will, but yours. He didn't run from his task. He completed his work to bring salvation to all those he would call, one person's actions, with extraordinary results for many. And look, here's a final thing for us to see about Jesus as we finish. And this brings us back to that second reading that Matt read for us from Hebrews T. Now, here's the incredible thing that we see about Jesus, is that he calls us to align ourselves with him, to trust his father as he did. But he does so having first aligned himself with us. Do you see that? That's Hebrews 2. That is the staggering news of the gospel. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Do you get that? Christ, the perfect, holy Son of God, is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He sees us for who we we really are. He sees us, he sees our wretchedness, our half-heartedness. He sees our hypocrisy, our foolishness, our mistakes, our, our coldness, our fearfulness. And he comes for us and he says, I'm with them. We're family. And I will overcome death that you might be freed from your slavery of fear to it. That's the king who calls us to align ourselves with. So, where does our allegiance lie? When we're faced with those moments of testing, let's make those decisions committed to God's people in love above ourselves and submitting to God's plan and humility, whatever may come. Let's make those decisions courageously, knowing Christ has first aligned Himself with us. I come back next week and see how things unfold, because it's pretty exciting. Let me pray as we finish. King Jesus, we praise you as the one who came for us. You aligned yourselves with us before you call us to follow him. Lord, as we've been thinking about Esther this evening, Lord, give us courage in those moments. Give us love for others above ourselves and help us to trust your good and perfect plan, whatever comes for us. Give us boldness to stand firm, to stand out for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. we invite the musicians to come back up and we're going to sing uh, two songs to finish songs that uh, remind us that living for Christ is something that we can only do through his strength uh, what he has done for us and his presence with us and reminding ourselves as well of the sure foundation that we have in Christ's promises to us so when the music starts should we stand and sing together
2: love, my deep and boundless peace.